Welcome to Growth Mindset University. I'm your host, Jordan Paris, and this show is all about learning the lessons we should have learned in school but did not, so that we can succeed in the progressive new age of business and life we find ourselves in today. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session. I am extremely grateful that you are here with me today on Growth Mindset University. Two times per week, we have interviews with the best of the best. New York Times bestselling authors, billionaires, the like, the most successful people in the world, people like Mark Manson, Naveen Jain, James Altucher, so many more. And I don't want you to miss these interviews. So go ahead and subscribe to this podcast, Growth Mindset University, wherever you are listening right now. One of my favorite things is when you reach out to our guests that we have on the show. So for example, if you enjoy today's guest, please reach out to them. Tell them that you enjoyed today's episode. Send them that token of gratitude. Like, look, I heard John Jordan's show and it was so good. This really impacted me. If you do this with every guest, you're going to start building a world-class network in record time. This is how I built my network. So this is just another way I'm looking to give back to you here. Just give you this little tip. So reach out to our guest today. And now without further ado, please enjoy the show. My guest today is Dotsie Bausch. After concluding a prolific professional cycling career that produced a medal at the 2012 London Olympic Games, eight U.S. national championships, two Pan American gold medals, and a world record, Zatsi Bausch has become a powerful influencer for plant-based eating for athletes and non-athletes alike. Long before embodying radiant health and becoming an influential game changer, Bausch struggled for years with severe eating disorders, and a recreational drug habit that combined led to a suicide attempt. We're going to talk about that today. It was during her recovery that she discovered her gift and love for the bike. Dotsie speaks passionately around the world, spreading her message about numerous benefits, humane, nutritional, and environmental of plant-based eating. Her popular TEDx talk, Olympic-level compassion has been a catalyst of change for thousands of people. Dotsie Bausch, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. This is cool to be on. I love all you do. Oh, well, thank you. I, I told you that the other day that I just so enjoyed hearing you on that other podcast. I, I Oh, my God. It was just the level of authenticity and how genuine you are really really shown through and you're you're so passionate about your message you just speak passionately you're a very good speaker obviously so i want to make sure people can find you today when they hear something and get curious switchforgood.com we're going to talk about that Dotsie Bausch. oh org wow sorry about That's okay. that no worries. I, some, sometimes i mess up yeah <laughs> dotsiebauschusa.com and the coolest Instagram tag ever. Ready for this one? At Vegan Olympian. So cool. Just straight up Vegan Olympian. That's what it is on Instagram. Go follow her on Instagram. So Dotsie, I'm surprised it was available. It was, I got it like two years ago. And then I was like, oh, Oh, so, uh, probably a million people have this, and it was like, uh, no, mm. available. <laughs> so cool. I'm jealous. I uh, My dream is to have JP. Like That would just be the <laughs> coolest thing ever. Of course, it's not available. I, I've sent messages to the guy, like, I'll give you 20 bucks for that. When in reality, it'd be like, 
twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> There's a whole market for that stuff. I I got a friend that sells them. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, just like they do yeah. with websites. You know, f- for years. You know, when it first started, people were buying. You know, JuliaRoberts.com and trying to charge her a million dollars for it. It's uh, but uh, now that's happening on Instagram. Yeah, internet real estate. So you have some ties to Philadelphia. I was hearing. Did you just go to school there, or are you from there? No, I'm from Kentucky. I'm from the South, or the Southerners call it the Midwest, and Midwesterners call it the South. I think it's kind of the South more than the Midwest. But um, I went to school right at Villanova in in right outside Philadelphia, and then lived in Philadelphia um, after college for a few years before I moved to New York City. So I Philly's like my favorite city. I, I just I, I love that place. Yeah. I'll be there in a couple of days, and actually, I'm very nice. familiar with the area because I grew up uh, 15, 20 minutes away from Villanova. So, where did you grow up? So, right around the, you know, obviously, you know, the King of Prussia Mall, right? Right. Uh, okay. So, Collegeville, yeah. Pennsylvania, yeah. Wow. Phoenixville, right. nice. uh, for that that whole Pottstown. Uh, yeah. So, and I have a lot of friends that went to Villanova. Very familiar, and so. I want to talk about your, you know, those those early days, right? Because there's so many layers to you. Like, there's three different parts. The eating disorders and, you know, who you were back then, the cycling, and then you know, veganism, which is so intriguing as mm-hmm. well. So, I want to talk about your story. Where do things start to go awry for you, uh, start mm-hmm. to get a little bit rough? Well, I grew up in a great... Uh, family still have a great family. <laughs> they haven't disappointed yet, uh, and so I had a really typical upbringing, a, a really um, well-rounded and um, loving childhood uh, growing up in Kentucky. So I went to school, as I mentioned, uh, Villanova, and things started to go take a downward spiral um, towards the end of my. Um, college career there. And really what happened was I had, I majored in journalism and minored in philosophy and I was planning on going into news and, and being a reporter for hard news. I, I, I really wanted to, you know, do kind of the, the nitty gritty news and bring that to the people. And so I did an internship, the local station in uh, Philadelphia. And uh, during that time is when I uh, realized and recognized um, how controlled our news actually is by big business, the government, you know, whoever's, it's big business really. And, um, as a proxy. And so, uh, I became, you know, wildly disillusioned, uh, with that. It, it, I was an intern. So it's kind of, you know, it's not like I was in all the, you know, serious meetings on what they were going to cover and what they weren't, but I just knew that we had been on some incredible stories, uh, and covered them and then they weren't going to air. And it, it was, it, it just started to put the pieces to, together. I thought, this is not authentic. You know, this is not the truth. You know, they're, they're, they're sheltering and they're hiding some of the truth. And we certainly, you know, know that today, right? It's hardly news anymore, you know, between Fox and CNN. It's just, you know, it's, it's so weighted on one side. So, um, almost I felt, persuasion and, oh, yeah, propaganda. it's a joke. Yeah. yeah. Walter Cronkite is like turning in his grave. I mean, it's just, it's, it doesn't, it's not news. I mean, we don't really have a good, solid um, news source that's right down the middle that shares. I stay very um, far away truth. from all yeah, those. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. But continue, yeah. So anyway, because of that um, 
just uh, feeling of, of, of fear of now what am I going to do? I've just majored in this. I can't take out another school loan and go back to school and study something else. Um, I think looking back on it, I probably would have loved the direction of um, sports reporting, but I wasn't uh, I wasn't an athlete yet, so that didn't really occur to me. And so that began my spiral downwards into my eating disorder, which probably at, at face value doesn't seem to really connect or make sense. But um, it, it was, uh, I was dealing with um, feelings of inadequacy and fear, basically, at that point, because I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I didn't know what I was going to do for work. I didn't know what job I was going to get. I, 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 was, I felt completely out of control. And so I just very slowly started asserting control by controlling my food intake. And that was dangerous because I got addicted to it and 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 quite frankly a euphoric high off of that really early on i mean from almost the first few times i did it was there ever a healthy like point of it and then it crossed into like okay this is an eating disorder like were you ever like super were you super healthy at one point in the early prime, early days. sure sure oh yeah yeah mm-hmm, definitely mm. i mean i i it just I, got out of control yeah, and and I I think that that's you know there's a, there's a lot of misconceptions around eating disorders. First of all, people think it's like a skinny or fat thing. You know, people are they think that it's just somebody asserting a desire to be a certain weight. When in reality, is um, an eating disorder is not too dissimilar from other disorders or other addictions like alcohol addiction or drug addiction or sex addiction. When where you've just chosen a poison to act out on your inner pain. So it was just my way of acting out on my fear and on my inadequacies, um, my self-beratement, and just kind of my, my, my misery that I was in at that period of my life. It was just a way to assert control. As you can imagine, I felt um, almost completely out of control because now I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. So, I, you know, it's a, a lot of early 20-somethings go through that, like, you know. So I just felt, um, you know, so in control when I was practicing my anorexia. Obviously, I wasn't. It spiraled pretty quickly. um, And I struggled and fought the disease for um, about five years. Wow. And what were, I mean, in the in the thick of it, like, what are some really low points that you remember? Uh, Well, I got to the point where I couldn't work. I mean, I was I was waitressing and I was modeling some and I was, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And so I got to the point where I couldn't hold those jobs. I couldn't work. I was completely withdrawn. I wasn't engaging in any um, relationships, whether it was with my family or friends or a boyfriend. I just completely withdrew. And I remember being alone in my apartment, um, in bed, uh, trying to read. I, I, I was so um week by that point and i remember trying to trying just to keep my brain moving a little bit which it wasn't doing very well because it wasn't getting enough nutrients to work at a high level and i remember trying to read and i remember almost an hour going by and reading the same page over and over and over again because it wouldn't i couldn't get anything to set in my mind to set in my brain and at that point uh i had been contemplating suicide and 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 the lowest lowest point was the actual attempt um running out on the 76 freeway um in the middle of the night just you know so desperate trying Mm. to uh 
just be done with it all. Really? Trying to be done with it all? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And so, like, what is, you know, after that, it was obviously, quite obviously, unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. I mean, here we are talking. Right. It's great. And I'm so thankful for that. (laughs) Uh, But what do you, like, what do you do after that? Hmm. Well, (laughs) there's... There were, uh, I didn't feel like there were really any options since it didn't, I didn't succeed. Um, but I, I, I did that rock bottom helped me to reach, um, what I think was the crossroads in my life, you know, where I, I recognized that I could either keep going down the path of what I was doing and I was probably going to try and commit suicide again, or I was just going to die from a heart attack, you know, most severe eating disorder sufferers, if they do lose their life to the disease, it's most oftentimes a heart attack because your body um, ends up eating its own organs. And so heart attack is is, is normally the way that um, they pass. And so I knew that that was a possibility. I had already had some heart issues with my anorexia. Um, and so I just, I don't know, this almost um, kind of cosmic um, moment came into my sphere of of um consciousness that said you have to at least take a step towards trying to get well i didn't think i would get well i didn't even actually think it would work but i had this extraordinary dedicated mom and dad and sister and i just thought how horribly selfish it would be if i were to die and without at least trying which, you know, it it doesn't make a lot of sense now saying it out loud, but it made sense to me then that I have to try because then when I die, at least they'll know I tried as if they were going to care whether I tried or not, I would be gone. You know, that would be, but that was, that was, that was honestly the, the, the catalyst, Jordan. It was that, that was it. It was, I just one day said, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to try. And I, I had in my head that it wasn't going to be successful, which I eventually really? obviously let go of. Yeah. I, I just, because I had been through a bunch of therapy before, like my mom had come in um, and done interventions and I had gone to different therapists and it wasn't successful. And I ended up just mostly lying to them to, to, get out of the session i'd done a ton of group therapy that was always really catastrophic because i just learned more tools of the trade of how to practice my eating disorder from the group therapy i mean that was just not a healthy environment yeah it's it's somewhat common in eating disorder group i i i mentor different people that suffer from eating disorders and have for many years and is really common um so uh Oh, uh, you, I would say over 50% of them tell me that in their group sessions, um, they learned more fuel for the fire, it, especially, you know, how to hide it better for bulimics, how to be more successful, you know, I won't, I won't go into the gory details, but yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, it's unfortunately, uh, you know, it, there, there's some group, good group sessions, of course, that, that, you know, but if you're still in the, in the throes of the eating disorder and you're only there because someone's making you be there and you don't want to be there and you don't want to heal, you're going to probably use it for, um, you know, tips to dive deeper. Well, if someone's bulimic, I know someone who is, she's a good friend of mine. Okay. What are some of the things that you how do you coach your uh you know how do you coach people through right this type of situation what do you tell them well i think one of the most important things to 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 know and understand about eating disorders is again they're not they're not usually about 
their weight. It's not usually about thin or fat. It's about an inner pain, an inner disruption. It just, it could be an issue from early in life. 30 to 40% of eating disorder sufferers are a victim of some kind of abuse early in their childhood. That's common, it, but it might not be the case. It wasn't for me, but it's quite common. So they're dealing with some kind of inner trauma, whether it was early in childhood or it was more recent. And so recognizing that it is most likely that and not just their desire to be, you know, thin or whatever it might be or a certain weight or look a certain way. So if you can recognize that, then you'll, you'll know that it's um, important for your friend not to be commenting on how she looks, <laughs> not saying things like, oh, you look fine or you look thin or you look better or you look healthier. Those kinds of things can fuel it. Um, it's more important as a good friend to say, um, I know that you might be struggling. I'm here for you to talk through things. If you want help, I'll help you find the right help. I'm in this with you. I love you and I support you. And those seem like the super obvious things to say, but with eating disorders, um, people don't know to say those things. They, they tend to know to say it if, if someone's an alcoholic or a drug addict, you know, like I'm here with you, I support you, go to treatment. But with eating disorder, people just don't even understand that it's a that it's a real inner battle for that person with their inner pain. So tell her that you just support her journey in into healing and that you love her. And because you love her, you want her to be here. You want her to thrive. You want her to dig her life and rock out her on her life just like you are. And it's she's not going to be able to do that if she's spiraling in bulimia. Yeah. And there's so there's nothing you can do when say you're out to eat. Like there's nothing you can say to like snap them out of it like that. No. It's a long, it's a longer yeah. longer game than that. It's definitely a long game. Well I mean, you know, it I will say that the averages of people who suffer for a long time have to do usually, um, and I've just found this to be the case and most uh, treatment experts will tell you this, however long you've been suffering and fighting the eating disorder is around the amount, same amount of time that it will take you to heal from it. And that's, of course, not an absolute, of course not. But it is generally speaking, for me, it was about that. I mean, I suffered for about five years and I got a lot better in, you know, 100% better in about that time, although I was significantly, significantly better to the point where I started riding my bike about two and a half years in. But so the earlier, the point of that is, is the earlier you can catch it as a good friend or the earlier the person themselves can catch it and recognize it and be able to say out loud, I have a problem, the shorter amount of time it may take to to get better. But there's definitely not like a, I wouldn't even talk about it when you guys go out to eat. I wouldn't even bring it up because that's just the most triggering space that you, that an eating disorder sufferer is in, in around food. And that would be probably the last way and the last um environment that i would suggest somebody to bring it up is yeah we don't we don't want to put too much pressure yeah. on it and, and think too much about it you can definitely overthink it and, and get all in your head too i mean it's, i mean it's not just with eating disorders with any type of uh it's almost like performance anxiety it could be uh so we're talking about your recovery like if you start talking about it you know while you're out but anyway we started about your recovery and at uh, you know, you're at 
you know, you're trying different forms of therapy. So let's talk about your long game. What did your long game look like uh, for the rest of that recovery process after that? You tried a bunch of different things and then what? Yeah, I did. And then I found a therapist. Um, I had moved out to Los Angeles by that point where I, I am now, where I'm south, a little south of LA in Orange County. But um, so I found this magical, incredible, amazing therapist who I just really connected with. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a big part of the battle with healing from anything, right? Is to really find somebody that you feel gets you, understands you and is, and you're safe around, you know, that, which means then you're able to be open and really tell them um, the nitty gritty of, of where your pain is coming from and why. But so I found her um, actually just um, kind of perusing through the classifieds back when there was like, <laughs> you'd look through the classified ads and she was going to speak at a, the basement of a Borders bookstore. Uh, and her topic was actually on fear, um, which was interesting because it wasn't on eating disorders, but that was a, an issue that I mentioned earlier that I, that I had was fear and self-loathing and, and anxiety. Um, and so I went to listen to her and just connected with her and went up to her afterwards and asked if she did private sessions. So she did, she does. And we got to work. Um, um, it was, um, it was a, it was a couple year journey, really intensive in the beginning, like almost daily. Then it went to three times a week and, you know, down from there. But um, it was, uh, she saved my life for sure. That's incredible. Now, before we, uh, before we move on from this eating disorder and anorexia, is there, what is something that you're willing to share that you've Mm -hmm. never talked about before with your eating disorder? Is there anything? Oh gosh. Well, as you mentioned before I, I I tend to be really open and very vulnerable in speaking about it just because I guess I, I have always had this feeling ever since I got better that it's all for naught if I don't share the truth and the whole truth. So I can't think of anything that I have, you know, absolutely never, ever said uh, you know, it, 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 but the, you know, the, the way that I, acted out on some of it, the way that I treated people when I was acting uh, in the in the depths of despair of my eating disorder are some of the most shameful things I've ever done in my life. I mean, I was a liar. I was a cheater. I was a stealer. I don't know that I've mentioned that. I got caught for shoplifting makeup. Um, I was just so sick that I was reaching out for like anything, just any excitement, any attention, any just whatever. And I spent some hours in the Philadelphia, downtown Philadelphia jail. Don't recommend that. Don't Um, recommend it. Okay. That was horrible, horrible. Um, and I was, you know, I was an adult, right? I was like, it was like my way early twenties. So I guess I was 20, it was either 20 or 21. So the June, um, the 21. And so, uh, I will say the system, whatever that is, it, it, it worked. Because I never took as much as a napkin again from somebody who owned those napkins. I mean, those hours of jail, I was like, this cannot be repeated. This is, this, it just scared the bejesus out of me. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Where did, where, sorry, sorry, were you going to say anything else? No, no, no. Did no, I interrupt? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. Where did the, where did the cocaine dependency, play into all of this? Was that part of you grabbing for the excitement? Well, it did, yeah, and it fueled the eating disorder quite nicely. Mm. You know, they were they were like good good friends. Um, 
good it friends. Was, ugh, you know, but not, but bad, but good at yeah. the time. Um, it was loads of fun. I mean, I just, you know, being just super honest. Um, but then it's not. So you, I mean, for anybody that's done anything that gets you high, uh, and I mean, good Lord, we know the depths of, of despair and destruction um, that's taking place with opioid addiction uh, in these days. Anything that gets you high will mask emotional pain for some period of time. Opioids really intensely. But cocaine works for a bit because you're so high, you're not, you know, you feel like you're on top of the world. So there's, you're, you're, you're still masking, you're, you know, you're able to mask emotional pain. And that's what I was struggling with was severe emotional pain. And so I just found something to numb out and mask it, which was cocaine. And um, so it was just, uh, it just went right along with the eating disorder in those years. Mm-hmm. So we're going to move on to uh, the athletic side of things. Where mm-hmm. does, where does cycling come in? Yeah, so that wonderful therapist I mentioned, um, her name is Chris Edstrom, by the way. She just spells it K-R-S, and then her last name is Edstrom uh, for anybody in the Los Angeles area or anywhere. She does Skype, too, because she's just extraordinary. She's still practicing. Um, So she, I think, recognized pretty early on uh, when we were having our sessions that there was um, so there was a competitor somewhere inside of me, that I just had a competitive nature. I did grow up uh, saddlebred horseback riding in Kentucky. And um, although I would say that horse is more the athlete than the rider, it was definitely, I was definitely, you know, quite competitive in it. And I think she recognized that fairly early on. So um, towards the end of those couple of years that I mentioned when we were, when I was much, much, much better and able to engage back in, in life and, um, uh, you know, work and get a job and, and, and get better. She suggested to me, um, she said, you know, I think that, you know, I would like for you to find something, some activity, some outlet, something physical um, that you can pour some of your energy into um, that does not have any connections to any of your previous pain. Because I had the part of anorexia that's known as overexercise disorder. Most anorexics end up having that as well. Um, and so she, you know, didn't want me to connect to any of those activities, which would have been treadmill, elliptical, stairmaster, just I just would spend hours and hours in the gym. So she said, those are off, those are off the table. But something outside, you know, we're in Los Angeles and it's beautiful. So I literally just was like, ding, how about I get a bike? Um, that sounds nice and enjoyable and it's like sunny, like, you know, almost all every day year here. Uh, and yeah, so it's beautiful. Yeah. So I, I just, that's how it happened. I just, she suggested it and I got a bike. I bought, I bought an old used mountain bike and, um, I started riding. Hmm. And, and that's not how I, I didn't just go to the Olympics after that. I mean, there's I, obviously like 15 was, years in there. Exactly. But. That was my next question is like, how does one go, go to the Olympics? I don't even, like if I wanted to, if I wanted to be an Olympic athlete, I would not even know where to start. Like, who do I go to? How right, do you officially right. enter? How do you qualify? Whatever. Yeah. So tell me about that. Right. Well, the, the point is that's you're right. Like, I, and I certainly that's the, that's not what I thought either. I mean, are there the people that are, you know, are they're two years old and they're like, I'm going to be an Olympian because they see it on TV? Yes. Right. I mean, it's, you know, so I think some of the gymnasts will say that and um, some of the swimmers. But um I uh, definitely did not think that was going to be any sort of possibility or case when I got going, but I basically just fell in love with it, 
right away. I fell in love with the beauty of it and the joy and the way that I felt on the bike. And of course, that was so freeing after so many years of being sick. So I I fell in love with it. And then I thought, maybe I want to do something kind of, uh, I want to do something that's going to give back uh, on my bicycle. So I decided to sign up for the Uh, California AIDS ride, which at the time went from San Francisco to Los Angeles. They didn't take a direct route. So it was about 700 miles, seven days, 100 miles a day. Um, And so I signed up for that, raised money. I remember it was $2,500, which back then was like I was raising $10 million. I I had no idea how I was going to raise that much money, but I did. And and did that ride. And during that ride, recognized that I had maybe a little bit more talent in this sport than most just because I spent most of the time on my mountain bike um but I had slick tires on not knobby tires on the street I will say that uh but was at the front with most of the leading guys I mean they're all guys so uh after that a couple of them kind of took me under their wing and said you know you should just try a race or something because you're 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 good at this and I don't think you realize that you actually might have some talent there and um I loved it and I I just thought that sounded like a fun idea so I try to race you know you do you have to like get a license I had to figure it all out like do I need a license are they just gonna let me in just like you're saying you don't know and you just you just go down the journey so I try to race had a horrible experience in my first race um it was pouring rain sleeting it was cold rain up in northern California finished the race called my mom and I was like okay so that's not gonna happen again we're gonna have to go on to the next thing because it was horrible it was just the worst it was just the worst thing I'd almost ever experienced. And then like a lot of athletes will do, you know, 30 minutes later, I was like, where's the next race? I need to, you know, I need to beat the demons that just (laughs) beat me in that, in that horrible experience I just had. So I, uh, just kept going and moved up in category cycling as many sports do for safety reasons have categories so you move up from a category four to a three to two one and then after that's pro so I moved up from a four to a one in about a year and a half which was usually it takes people probably a full year to move up each category so about four years and I did it in a year and a half and um I um, then ended up competing in my very first U.S. national championships on the road in a road race, and I got fourth. And that's when the U.S. national team took notice and said, huh, who are you? And you're old. Why are you? What's going on? Because I I started at 26, I think I failed to mention. And so by this point, um, I was like 28 and a half, I think, when I did that race. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. So I was, you know, a little, little bit older than, you know, someone that they're just first noticing. So... Yeah, so I, I went and got tested by um, the by USA Cycling, you know, VO2 max and watt bike test and, you know, blood lactate and all the tests that you do. And I, it actually came back that I had like marginal talent. I, I'm not like the most talented person in the world, um, you know, m- better than maybe your average. But in, in relation to a professional athlete, I have marginal talent, but, you know, some, not a lot. But um, so well, how do you how do you accomplish so much then if you only have quote unquote marginal? Well, talent? there's a lot. I think there's a lot of Olympians out there that that uh, I know there are. I've met some of them um, who were tested and they had, you know medium to marginal talent not the you know the 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 real huge champions of the world Mm. the ones that win over and over and over and over again phelps um exactly like a phelps like a michael jordan um like a katie ledecky like a serena williams they have extraordinary talent with a unparalleled work ethic so the, the, the all the rest of us 
a lot of times you'll find have more work ethic than talent. Because if you have extraordinary talent and, and not a good work ethic, it's hard to make it that very far. You know, some of some, some will, right? Uh, just off of sheer talent, but not for longevity. Like they'll maybe win some races or be able to make it to a world championships or something. But there's too many people that are willing to put the work in um, to compete against. So I think honestly, if you were to interview like a lot of Olympians, you'd find it's more it's more work worth work ethic than talent um, than than true, real, raw, physical like genetic talent. So were you putting in a lot of time then? Mm. Sounds like. Oh, yeah. I mean, by the time I went pro, which was, you know, a couple years after the U- I was racing with the U.S. national team, um, it's all I did. It's all I did for 12 years. I mean, I didn't. Yeah. It, 24 but seven. Yeah. What? So you're so you're in your 20s and 30s at that time. And what are you doing to, like, survive and make money, though? Right. Because in the beginning, I didn't. And the, it, the last four years of my career, I made good money as a professional cyclist and we should classify good. I mean, you know, like I paid all my bills and I took care of myself and I was able to save a little, like nobody was dragging in millions of dollars through the front door, but, um, I had really committed sponsors and I made a good, a good, decent living. But before that, you're totally right. It was like, you know, the women's salaries in cycling are still, ridiculously so much lower than the men. We don't have parity between men and women cycling on an international uh, level at all. Right. Uh, I mean, so my, my salaries were like 12,000 a year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. So what are you doing? So I did time. um, You're working hard. And mm -hmm. I, I, this was, I'm really going to date myself, but this is like, you know, the beginning of the boom of the internet. And so I thought, okay, I've got to do something that uh, I don't have to be somewhere uh, at a cer- on certain hours because I, I want to put my training first. Uh, so I thought maybe I could do something on this this crazy internet that's probably not going to go anywhere. But, you know, <laughs> so uh, I started, I always like to write. I mentioned I majored in journalism. And so I got a couple of um, jobs writing uh, cards. And I don't, you probably too young to remember, but well, they used to send people cards on the internet, but like Blue Mountain, there was like, it was like the thing, like you sent, cause it just, you know, you didn't have to send a Hallmark card anymore. Like you sent a card through the internet. So um, I got like temp jobs, you know, that where I would write cards and send them. And so that's what I did for, I don't know, maybe two or three years, I guess, in the beginning when I brought no money in from cycling. And then I started to bring, you know, enough in that I could survive. And then, you know, so it's, um, yeah, but your day was your day was like doing this work, but you're thinking about cycling the whole time. Is that like you can't wait to cycle? Is that the was that the deal in the beginning? I may have just written some cycling focused birthday cards, yes, for people for, for the for the companies, and I was like, they were like, what is this? <laughs> oh, whoopsie daisy. Um, yeah, I would oh yeah, love it to was... have one of those. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> trying to dig some of them up. I'm sure I have some of the word docs. Um, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was, a. I would definitely call it a, a healthy obsession. You know, I mean, I, I really, I remember uh, lying to somebody in an elevator once when I was like on the verge of maybe be, being able to do this professionally, but I was not professional yet. And I remember them asking me what I, it was in my cycling kit. And, and so I said, oh, I'm a professional cyclist. And I wasn't yet. And I remember like getting out of the elevator, like you just 
did, that's mm. not true. But it was so true in my head. Like I was so there already. I had, you know, it's kind of the power of the mind, right? It's like the Tony Robbins thing, like, make, you know, believe it and it will become. And I was in that space. I was going to make that happen. And you did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> that's excellent. When in your career did you decide to become a vegan? Um, it, I was about two and a half years out from Olympic Games. But yeah, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, almost my entirely cycling career, I didn't really think too much about what I put in my body or nutrition all that much for that matter. And especially because coming out of my eating disorder, I really had a rule that I was um, not going to ever count any calories. I wasn't going to weigh my food. I wasn't going to um, do anything data or metrics driven around my food and my nutrition. And I told the nutritionist that because, you know, later on in my career, there were nutritionists involved. Um, And so I was really kind of far away from actually thinking about macronutrients and micronutrients and and what they could do for my um, performance. But I uh, basically, I was just exposed um, via uh, something I saw on TV, uh, to the truths and the reality um, and the, the horror and the terror of what goes on behind closed doors in our food system, in animal agriculture, in what happens for us to get this piece of whatever it might be to our plate. And I just, something hit me like a brick, like so, and it, it well, almost like a shock. Cause it was, I remember just having this visceral um, experience in my heart and my soul of this is not okay. Why don't people know this? And I don't want to subscribe to this anymore. And I don't want to pay into a system that is perpetuating this misery. And the, and and it was just so disgusting that I I was turned off. Like I don't want that on my plate. Like does people do people realize what they're actually eating? Um, and so well, I, I tell just stopped. People and they don't care. <laughs> no. Oh yeah. No. It's like the whole. I, you know, I could probably go on forever about the the what what lands on people and what makes them intrigued what helps them to care i definitely have found that it's not what we tell them it's what the the our walk right not what we're talking about but more of our walk i get so many more people that are intrigued and want me to share the journey with them and share with them then okay what are they going to eat now if they decide to take animals and animal products off their off their plate than if i just went on some kind of you know tour of look at this you should not subscribe to this. People do not like to be told what to do, right? It's so it's a bad way to approach it for sure. Yeah. Using the word should, like you should do this. I don't, I don't, nobody likes to be should, should, right? I should be. But, you know, I, I cannot stomach eating factory farms meat. I just don't understand it with the amount of drugs and antibiotics that they pump into these really, really sick animals because they're caged up. And gosh, Dotsie, I used to do, I, my first love was health because my family comes from a metal, medical background, doctors. And so like I was a kid on pubmed.gov, you know, looking up arthritis and nutrition and cancer and nutrition, all sorts of stuff. Like I just love doing that. And I was a personal trainer a couple of years ago, but So that's when I was researching it. So it's not as fresh in my mind now, but I was writing these papers on it and just came away like outraged and disgusted. And I was so 
I was such an activist in, you know, at least to the people around me, like, and I would tell people and I would shock them. Yes. It'd be like, Oh, wow. But would they change the way they were going to eat? No. Uh, (laughs) And, and with my, you know, with my parents and my family, everything had to be like catered to me, you know, Uh, like, we can't go out to eat here or else Jordan's not going to eat. <laughs> like I was, there was no chance I'm putting that garbage in my system. And this stuff, uh, you know, Naveen Jain, of course, was on the podcast with, with Viome and, you know, he talks about the gut microbiome. Yeah. yeah. And, and this stuff is just tr- horrible, horrible what it does to your gut microbiome. So, I am all all with you there too, and, and even dairy. Like, I'll, so I'll eat dairy now. You know, having you know me with never having any dairy, and if I if I eat dairy, it's like a, a, a bomb goes off <laughs> in my system. It's bad. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really it's. I mean, dairy's dairy's the worst of it all, and I I think you know just from a a simple standpoint in, in in terms of being able to just describe that because we have been fed and and a perpetuated long-standing belief that we need dairy to do certain functions in our body we need dairy to build strong bones we need dairy to recover we need dairy for this certain protein we need dairy for you know potassium and calcium and the the truth is we need those nutrients we would die without the macronutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, and fat. We need them. Um, and we need the vitamins and minerals. We need calcium in our diet. We need magnesium. We need potassium. But we don't need it in the form of cow's milk. Um, because when you think about what cow's milk is, we know what it is. It's a growth fluid for baby cow, just like our mother's milk was a growth fluid for us. Um, and so you get some some of those nutrients. You get some protein and you get some carbohydrates and you get some fat and you get some calcium. But with that, you get a gnarly, intense cocktail of 15 sex hormones. You get estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. You get cortisol, which is our stress hormone. None of us need any more of that in our lives. Um, you get saturated fat. You get trans fat, you get all different molecules that our body doesn't properly recognize because they're from a completely different species, a <laughs> bovine. Um, and so what does our body do when it gets uh, takes in molecules that it doesn't recognize? It mounts a defense, it builds antibodies, and it fights against. And, and inflammation is what occurs when our body does that. Um, and we know it's been proven over and over again in both the plant-based world, meat-based world, all sorts of worlds, that inflammation is an instigator, a precursor to almost all of our chronic diseases today. And it is certainly uh, horrible for recovery of an athlete, right? Like inflammation is exactly what we are trying to fight. So we don't want to be bringing in foods that are going to enhance um, our inflammation. So you know, that just kind of helps people go, oh, okay. You know, I sort of see now what is actually in cow's milk. You need to be having calcium, not in cow's milk. Eat almonds, have tahini, have some bok choy, have some kale. There's like a million amazing sources of calcium that don't have to come in another mother's breast milk. Yeah. What gets me is the amount of medical professionals, doctors that recommend milk as something that is mm-hmm. healthy and it's just not 
It's just not true. However, what about, let's talk about pasture-raised eggs, pasture-raised beef, you know, I'm not vegan. I won't have dairy and I won't mm-hmm. have more than mm-hmm. more than two ounces of meat in a day mm-hmm. on 99% of days. But if I do have something, it's going to be pasture raised anything. It's going to be the best of the best. It's very expensive. What what about that stuff? Is that is that really unhealthy? Is is it really that unethical because uh they're being taken care of much more than mm-hmm. you know, these factory farmed animals that are sick and tortured? Well, possibly. In some settings, they may be taken care of. But I mean, what if I said to you that I was going to take really good care of your mom and give her a massage and let her sleep on a lavender pillow and have a beautiful bed and be able to hang out with her friends? But then I was going to chain her up, rape her, get her pregnant. I mean, this is what we know. You know, they they, yeah. they chain them yeah, up yeah. when they inseminate them because they're not just going to stand there. Um, and uh, then get her pregnant and the cows are pregnant for nine months, just like humans. And then she was going to give birth. And then I was going to steal her baby, your baby sister away from her. And then I was going to do it again to her over and over and over and over again until her body completely gave up. And then I was going to take her to slaughter. So that's exactly what happens to cows on a beautifully, organic valley raised farm they eat some grass so basically they're eating grass instead of grain they're seeing the sunshine every once in a while uh that's the only difference so yeah yeah they're still taking their babies away i mean think about it if the milk's for the humans and and these they're in the business to sell milk the people, right, that, that that own these companies, that own these corporations, whether they're small, medium, or large, they're in this business, uh, and they are in the business to make a profit, not to not make a profit, uh, not to go out of business. So every single baby is is drug away from their mothers. Uh, right at 24, 48, 72 hours, it's different. Um, I've been to these facilities. I, I actually filmed a short documentary at an organic grass-fed beef farm. So no dairy cattle at all. This farmer had 11 cows, tiny, tiny place, bucolic setting in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, like a couple hours from Philly. Um, Mm -hmm. Gorgeous place, for sure. Um, The cows there, and this is when I learned this aspect, which is uh, really common, I've learned now. Um, when they say grass-fed, they don't mean grass-finished. And I've just learned that grass-finished is a term I only learned that about a year ago. When, when cows are grass-fed, uh, they're grass-fed for the first about um, six, around six to seven months of their life. Then they are shipped to a feedlot where they, are, where they fatten them up for about another four to six months before they go to slaughter. They don't tell us that. I mean, in this, I'm not going to tell you the, the farmer's name, but you know, for privacy. But uh, this was in, in the in this in the short documentary directly from uh, him. The, the, this is where the, the, we we ended up rescuing a mother and her baby cow. This mother had given birth to 18 babies. This cow, who we named Jimmy, was her 18th baby. She had every single baby taken away from her at eight months. So which is worse, the day that you're born or eight months later after they had formed this gorgeous, incredible mother-son or mother-daughter relationship, 
Then they come get the baby and chuck them off to this feedlot to make steak. This is, this was her, that happened to her 17 times. The 18th baby, we ended up rescuing her and her baby. The farmer let us, that's a long story in the duck, in the short doc, but um, so they're at, at safety now. But he explained to me that that's where Jimmy was headed. He would go to a feedlot for six months. If you buy grass finished beef, so I understand, I've never bought any. That's supposedly, you know, their last bite of food was the grass. Uh, great. That's great for you, I guess. I don't know. Um, but it doesn't change what, that they were drug away from their mothers and I, no one is ever going to be able to convince me that there is anything that humane slaughter is humane. I mean, that's a complete oxymoron. There's no such thing. Mm. You can't kill something in any way, shape or form that doesn't want to die and call that humane. Um, there's more humane raising, but there's no such thing as humane slaughter. And if it's on your plate, it's it's gotten killed. Mm, that is right. And it's, it's very tough to argue with some really just a, a new perspective here that I've not thought of now, but what do you say to the mm -hmm. people that are thinking of switching for good and going mm -hmm. vegan, but, and, and like, this all sounds good. This all makes sense. This all makes sense to them. Like it does for me, but it's like, ah, do I want to go vegan? Not really. What do you say to those people? <laughs> it's okay. Take your time. Um, I, I, you know, I, I try not to be militant about it um, because that doesn't help people. And that doesn't, you know, um, assist people in a positive journey. I think, first of all, people are allergic to the word vegan and I get it. You know what I mean? In in the past, it, it, it's been a lot of like screaming in your face, you know, yelling, uh, militant type of personalities. Um, and, 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 and for rightfully so in, in, you know, in, in cases, you know, when you have this really intense feeling against violence and against torture and suffering, you you just, you know, you get pretty passionate about it. But right. nonetheless, it's not a great way to help people, you know, make their journey. So I try to talk plant-based more than vegan because <laughs> people have such a, such a tough time uh, with the word vegan. So I think, you know, what I say to people, if they come to me or if they're just curious, I say, listen, take your time. You know, this is this is changing an entire lifetime of what you're used to eating and how many times a day do we eat? Three, four or five times a day, maybe. So it's going to take some time if you're truly interested in if you're interested in it from an ethical standpoint, you know, from a moral compass standpoint. Um, it's still OK to take your time. Start making small changes. Go to the grocery store. Lean in. Lean into more produce. Lean into more plants. Go to the plant based you know, meat section of the grocery store, if you will. Try a few different options there. See what you like, see what you don't like. Don't rebuy the stuff you don't like. Just don't like we don't in the meat and dairy world. You just don't rebuy the stuff that you didn't enjoy before. That's cool. Um, and just allow yourself to, to let it unfold. I think as a society in general, we have a tendency to try to be perfect, right? We were like, if I'm going to do this, I have to do it 100% or I'm not going to do it at all. And I think that sets us up for failure. So if people come to me and they say, like, I kind of want to be plant-based. I, you know, I don't want to harm any animals and I, I want to do it for my health. Uh, but I just really love ice cream. I say, then go plant-based except for ice cream. You know, it's okay. And, you know, during the, the, the journey, you'll eventually uncover the incredible world of coconut ice cream 
my personal feedback. Oh my God. I just wanted to say that to you. I you this, <laughs> have you have you tried Nada Moo? Like yes. Moo Moo? Yes, okay. yes, 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 it's, yes. <laughs> it's the best stuff in the it's entire the world. I love the and I got it. I, I have I have a quarter pint of a pint every single night after dinner. And I love the chocolate. I love the vanilla. I love the maple pecan. And I <gasps> love, pecan. I, yes, yes. It's so good. And I've tried it once. Cause I, I, I didn't know this existed until very recently. They had a birthday cake flavor that I found in another uh, store that I'd never heard of before. And that was really good though. What they used for like the, the color, it, it's, it's definitely the least healthy one. And there's a little bit more sugar in that one, I think. But, uh, oh, and the mint chocolate chip. This stuff is so good. Think about it, Dotsy. You're going to be right along with me. This is how I pitch it to people. I okay. like the, the coconut. Like, well, ice cream ice cream's really good. But wouldn't it make a lot more sense to have as the base of the ice cream a sweet coconut cream as opposed to some dairy with pus in it and all these sex hormones like doesn't it make a lot more sense that 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 the coconut would taste so much better and the texture's not all that different either right i know i'm thinking i'm going to connect you with the nanamu people because they need to do an advertisement with you in it because that was perfect (laughs) (laughs) i want some so much right now it's yeah it's extraordinary i i you you know the you know the nanamu people I do. Yeah. The, the, um, I don't know if you, uh, caught wind of it, but a couple months ago, um, uh, a guy by the name of Robbie Ballinger ran across America on any, he, he was doing it to promote, promote eating plants as he's a, you know, plant-based athlete. Uh, and he started in, uh, Huntington beach, California and ran to New York city and a switch for good, uh, was one of his supporters as was not a move. And so we got to know the not people pretty well during Robbie's journey, like, hooking him up with some different media in the different cities and just his whole journey. So I'm a big fan of theirs and everything they do. Um, but there's, there are so many, I mean, go for not a move for sure, but there's, I mean, Ben and Jerry's makes seven vegan ice creams. I mean, it's like, it's the mainstream. I mean, you oh. just have to go to your grocery store. Oh yeah. It's seven. I mean, it's incredible. I'd like there, to try that. Oh, you, well, be careful because. It's probably, no, there's a lot of sugar in it. It's, it's still not going to be healthy, but. Right. But it's healthier. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, ice cream in general, right? It's it's just for a treat. It's not like we don't just want to fuel our lives with ice cream. But but um, yeah, if people really have like this, you know, they have this this kind of ice cream uh, fetish. Uh, I, I think that they will absolutely love the soy based ice cream, the coconut based ice cream, the rice milk based ice cream. I mean, there's so many different kinds. And I think they might find too, that then they're not as addicted to ice cream as they once were, because as we know, dairy ice cream, all dairy, um, has casein in it, which is the protein, uh, one of the proteins in dairy, the other one's whey. And, uh, when casein, that protein, uh, passes through us and passes over the blood brain barrier, it turns into casomorphine, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's an opioid derivative. It, it is in the, in mother nature. It is in there. It was in our mother's breast milk to help the baby to latch. 
it's a, it, you know it, it's everyone's seen like the the baby you know right like the baby after they've breastfed and we call you know everybody you, you call them like drunk baby or happy baby or whatever you know they that, that look on their face like they're kind of out of it uh it's that's the case of morphine mother nature has created that for the most beautiful reason but now that we're stealing the breast milk from another species and eating it for ourselves same case of morphine that's why a lot of people are addicted to dairy. That's why, you know, you mostly hear people say, oh, my gosh, I can't give up cheese. Mm-hmm. Cheese is an exaggerated amount of quesomorphine because it takes liters and liters of cow's milk just to even make like one ounce of cheese. So you're uh-huh. getting like extra more hits of quesomorphine than you would if you just drank like maybe an eight ounce glass of milk or something. So um, it is addictive. And once we get that out of our system, I mean, I used to be that way with ice cream. And now I have ice cream, I don't know, like five times a year or something. And I don't feel this need to have it again, you know, like two nights later. That's the case of morphine. So it's cool to get that out too. get out, get that out of our bodies. Yeah. Well, something you said that I heard you say that is just a great case for going plant based is, you know, you're talking about steak on a plate. Like what is what is your steak? without the seasoning like we we are the food you said that that's making your food taste good with all the seasons in it like what is that it's all plant it's it's plants and it made yeah i had to write that down it made a lot of sense i was like oh you know what you're right because that, that could be one of the common obstructions to going vegan like ah i like food i like taste i like i, I yeah i like tasty food but hey yeah plants are what make things taste good yeah, I mean, it's, you know, obviously if you're if you're taking the meat and the dairy out, I mean, you're taking out a lot of saturated fat and people are addicted to that satiation or that feeling of saturated fat. So I always suggest them to lean into, you know, plant fats kind of hard in the beginning to replace that, you know, lean into nut butters and lean into avocados and lean into, you know, walnuts. And but um, th- yeah, the truth is, is just far as the flavor goes. A flavor palette. Um, you are always, if you're eating any type of meat in a restaurant or grilling it yourself, everybody tenderizes it, marinates it, seasons it, right? Like nobody talks about just throwing like a dead animal on the grill. I mean, even the greatest chefs, you know, it, whenever you're, they're smoking anything or grilling anything, they're mostly talking about what they're going to season it with. And the, and, the, and the layers of flavors that they're going to add to this, whatever the meat might be to put on the grill or, or to smoke. I mean, think about barbecue sauces. There's whole competitions of the fl- of the flavors and the seasons and those sauces to make. So, yeah, I think if people think of it, I was like, oh, yeah, there actually is this like amazing flavor profile in the plant world. This is true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Dotsie, I feel like I could just talk to you all day and we'll have to have you back on at another time. Oh, so fun. And- yeah, so fun. So well, I just wanted to ask you, what excites you the most about what you're doing right now with Switch for Good? Oh, you know, it's just, just being able to wake up every day and lean into what in my personal view and my personal feeling is um, the right way to live and lean into my own moral compass of what I feel is right and fair and good and just. Um, there's so many injustices in this world, right? I mean, the animals are just a part of it. There's so many injustices to humans on 
a variety of different levels and there are so many people doing such great work and for whatever reason for me um, I just feel really compelled to fight for the voiceless um, the, the, you know what we're doing to animals they, they don't have a, a much of a choice in the matter um, we're specifically breeding and confining animals that are um, pretty docile in nature that's why we're doing it no one's farming lions because they get eaten in, in doing so, you know what I mean? We're, we're, and, and they, and, and I just, I just uh, feel like we have this incredible choice every single day, three, four times a day to, to make a choice to follow what is most of our moral compasses, right? It's most of us are against violence and, and torture and maiming and pain and misery. We're against that. We don't, we don't want to see anybody, any human, any animal, any species treated that way. So it just feels good to, to be doing this work um, when I get up in the morning. And it's, it's hard and I'm definitely going against the grain and against the status quo. And it's not popular. I mean, it's like not a popular. I'm not doing something that's, you know, it was much more fun being an Olympic athlete because that was like, you know, everybody loves the Olympics. Not very many people love this, but I just feel, um, you know, it makes my heart uh, sing. So here we go. Well, the only the only meat that I have in a day is in my lunch almond flour Almond flour wraps, the Siete okay. almond flour wraps with my organic spinach. And what I'll put in there is a little sliver of pasture-raised beef. So for me, it's a really easy thing. If I wanted to go vegan, I'm like 99% there already. So I'm already thinking of things that yeah. I can do to replace that. Tatsi, what is yeah. next for you? Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you to try – the first thing I want you to try is smoky tempeh. Okay. And then we're oh, I've seen it. And yeah, then, yeah. And then you'll let me know. You can email me and, and you'll say, eh, no, that didn't do quite do it. I think it will, but if it didn't, we'll find something else. Um so I am I am I'm I'm living my next thing. I, I imagine um, I'm the executive director of Switch for Good, as you mentioned. Um, and for all your podcast listeners, uh, this we have a Switch for Good podcast that I co-host with Alexandra Paul, who um, is a passionate animal. Uh, activist. Uh, and she also starred on Baywatch for um, eight years. So a lot of people know her from that. She's a, um, a, a wonderful actress. Um, and so, it, it, you know, it's just it's just spreading this message, hopefully lovingly and with acceptance and meeting people where they are. Beautiful. So people can find you switchforgood.com org dotsybauschusa.com uh the podcast with uh, switch for good which we love podcasts here of course and at vegan olympian on instagram and then at dotsybausch <laughs> on twitter so dotsy my final question for you i promise this is the final one i know this has been a long one today there's just so much to you and i i, I just so enjoyed talking with you and, and really acknowledge you for sharing your message. But promise is the final question. If you could teach a course at a university, course of your creation or otherwise, what would it be? Um, well, I, I don't want to sound repetitive here, but I just have to be honest. Um, uh, I, I think that I would love to teach a course that uh, was titled um, Identifying and Following uh, your moral and ethical inner compass. Dotsie Bausch, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I Thanks for spending so much time with me. It was an honor. 
I love oh, it. Oh, thank you for spending time with me. This is this is great. I I was I was borderline nervous going into it because I was just so impacted by your by your sto- story. Like I never I, I don't get too nervous. I've done so many of these, but like yeah, you had me you, you had me uh, you had me on edge a little bit. <laughs> At first, I know you're very nice, but uh, but uh, I just wanted to show up good for you. It was really fun. No, you do a great interview, and um, I appreciate it. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of Growth Mindset University, the podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, all I ask is that you share it out to your friends, family, etc. on your Instagram story and tag me and our guest today. And don't forget to message our guest as well so that you build your network as you listen and learn with this podcast. And if you really believe that hearing the message of growth is important to the world and you want to help others find our show and you're not satisfied with just taking a screenshot and sharing this on your Instagram story, well, I've got good news for you. You can go the extra mile in helping spread this message of growth. You can leave us an honest rating and review in Apple Podcast. We have over 200 ratings right now and it has made a gigantic difference for this show, not only helping people find the show, but getting awesome guests. Thank you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn and grow to give.